Can't make it to every NHL arena? Now here's the long and the short of it. We've got you covered with our own rink rat. I'm sure this will be a real bonding experience. Sirius XM's Rob Brinder brings you Rinkside on Lightning Power Play. All right, get out on the ice. Let me see what you can do. Welcome, everybody, to the Rink Rat Show. I'm Rob Brenner. The unofficial midway point in the NHL season passed last week with the playing of the All-Star Game in St. Louis. The All-Star Game, as we know, has been a staple in the NHL since the 1947-48 season, with a number of different formats having been used over the years, from the traditional head-to-head conference exhibition to the World Stars taking on the North Americans to something that resembled a fantasy draft, and most recently the divisional four-team setup that we saw last week. The league has done everything they can do to generate interest in the event. Some might say they've actually been trying too hard. Traditionalists tend to love the East versus West or Campbell versus Wales, while others like the flair and novelty of a different style game every few years. This also goes for the skills competition, which has seen new events added while the league also continues to embrace some of the staple competitions that we've seen for years, such as fastest skater and hardest shot. Are enough true hockey fans interested in the entire All-Star weekend to make it continue in its current format? Are new fans being attracted with the tweaks that are being made? There's so many questions that we have to ask and joining us to go deeper into the All-Star game and whether it's a viable entertainment commodity for the NHL is a man who was on hand last week in St. Louis to cover the event. He's a senior writer for ESPN, Greg Wyshynski. Greg, how are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure to have you. I've wanted to have you on for a long time, and this gave me a perfect excuse, so I'm glad we were able to make it work. So as I said, the, the league is trying to do essentially everything they can do to drum up interest in the event. They've been doing it for years and years, and changing the format is certainly part of that. Adding the $1 million reward that they did a couple of years ago is certainly part of that. Do you think that what they're doing currently is working and is worthwhile? I do. Um, you know, there's a lot of criticism of the All-Star Game on, a, on an annual basis about, you know, it, and this is going back years, the fact that it doesn't look like a regular season game and how, uh, you know, the players approach the game at half speed and, and all this other stuff. But, you know, as a, as a, as a centerpiece marketing uh, moment for the NHL every season, I think it's effective, uh, and especially if you're on site. I think a lot of the people that criticize the All-Star Game in, uh, in columns and, and articles aren't ones that actually leave the press box at any point to go explore the fan fest or to see um, what the community is doing around the event and to see people coming in from all different uh, places in the United States and abroad uh, to go to these events and, and to be with their hockey tribe uh, for a weekend. It's, it's a really special time if you're on site for one of these things. And um, as a, and as an event, you know, the skills competition for me has always been one of my favorite things every year. Um, I don't think there's any faking the hardest shot or fastest skater competition. So you do see a lot of effort in those. Uh, some of the more wackier events they've tried through the years get an A for effort, if, if not necessarily for execution, but at least they're different and entertaining and they try some new things. And, you know, if you're going to take a run at the quality of the play in the All-Star game, this might not have been the year to do it because I thought two of the three games that they played in that mini tournament of three-on-three we're actually quite entertaining. So um, it's an event I really enjoy. Um, I, I feel like it takes a little bit too much criticism. I just, I just wish that there was a way to shore up the fact that we can get the best of, and the brightest in the league at the All-Star game every season because that certainly does seem to be the biggest criticism and, and valid criticism of the game is that 
uh, too many players for uh, various and sundry reasons duck out of the game every year. Yeah, that seems to be the going trend, not just in the NHL, but also in the NFL with the Pro Bowl for years, that players just say, you know what, I've been beat up for a full season, I don't want to be a part of this, I need my rest, and I guess a similar philosophy in the NHL for these guys, the Alex Ovechkins of the world, that say, you know what, I I just need a break, I'm playing 30 minutes a game, I'm out here every single day, I just, I need a rest, and here's an opportunity for me to do it, and I'm sure the NHL is, is doing everything they can to encourage these guys to be there, but ultimately what could they do is there an idea that you've seen thrown around to to almost force these guys to be a part of it well i mean increasing the penalties is one but i don't think the nhl necessarily has an appetite to do that i think they know that the criticism coming back their way if they were to say give two game suspensions or something if you duck out of the all-star game uh the backlash would be not worth the the effort in trying to enforce it I've talked to the nhl about this bill daly deputy commissioner said there needs to be a, a conversation with the nhlpa about how to, you know, ensure that these guys show up for the All-Star game. In Ovechkin's case, it's an interesting one, and there might be a path forward through the last couple of seasons. Nobody had a problem with him skipping the All-Star game after the Caps won the Cup. I mean, he had played deep into June, more hockey than he had ever played. In the past, he had been a a centerpiece of All-Star weekend and, and really put in his time to make the event entertaining. I don't think anybody had a problem with him skipping last year. It's skipping this year that's the issue, two years in a row. Um, and you're just basically saying, look, I need the rest instead of going to this thing. Um, when you're one of the biggest stars in the league, it's kind of the expectation that you're going to be at a signature event like this. So, you know, you don't want to necessarily see that happen. The real um, interesting aspect of trying to entice players to play in this event, though, is the format. And, you know, by all accounts, uh, and the NHL has said this, they're going to move away from the current division versus division versus division versus division format into a more internationally tilted format next year, which is probably going to look like US, a team that's from the U.S., a team that's from Canada, and they'll figure out the European components of it. But if they can change this into sort of a national pride-type, quasi-Olympic World Cup-type deal instead of this uh, traditional all-star format, I think you might get a few more guys that are interested in, in going and kind of representing their country in an event like that versus representing, say, the Metropolitan Division. Yeah, that's fascinating that you say that. And actually, the minute that you said it, I, I thought, you know what? That's a great idea. I hadn't heard them talking about that. So that's, that's very it, fascinating. It, it's, yeah, it's, it's something they're going to definitely do to kind of spice up the, uh, the format and also give these guys a taste of the uh, best-on-best country versus country thing they're currently not getting without going to the Olympics or, you know, with the World Cup being delayed a few years. What it does lead to is, as some of the older uh, listeners will remember, when they had the uh, Team North America versus the World format, is it leads to some randos getting into the All Star game. <laughs> you need to, you need to kind of, you know, you're not you're not necessarily getting, you know, the the twelve or fourteen best defensemen or whatever in the in the All Star game. You're getting, um, you know, guys that fit the suit. You know, guys from yeah. certain countries that are going to allow you to fill the roster, and that's how you end up with like the Yuri Sleegers of the world becoming all-stars back in the day. So the format change does bring with it some challenges insofar as the personnel, but, but I think it's, it's worth trying. And and listen, anytime you can get the USA versus Canada rivalry uh, into the forefront at one of these events, it's always going to be a good thing. Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. We're talking to Greg Wyshynski, senior writer at ESPN. And actually that brings up another point because if you go back to, you know, even the 1980s or the 1970s when they had these all-star games and even though they were in the traditional format, a lot of it was, it seemed like pride in the conference 
or pride, not necessarily in the division uh, so much. I, th- I think the conference more so. So you'd have the Wayne Gretzky's of the world coming out of the Western Conference, and, and you'd have, you know, name your great all-star level, uh, Hall of Fame level talent coming out of the East, and they wanted to beat each other to a certain degree. And, and you lose that pride maybe because of all the player movement and free agency and guys signing in different places. And it, it feels like it's actually had an effect not just in the NHL, but also you can, again, go back to other sports in the NFL and in Major League Baseball and their all-star game because of so much free agency. There's kind of less pride taken in who comes out a winner when there's nothing ultimately at stake in the end other than maybe a monetary prize. So going to the world format actually kind of brings that pride back. And, and I think you alluded to that a little bit, but that, that seems to be maybe a way to generate even more interest in this. It's possible. I, I mean, I don't know how much the conference pride thing was our perception of the event as, as younger fans yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, right. versus how, yeah, versus how the players actually felt about it. I couldn't tell you um, without talking to those guys a little bit to see how they actually felt about it. But I mean, as kids, obviously you're always thinking, Oh yeah, you'd, you'd want the, the Wales conference to get over the Campbell and, you know, all this other stuff, but it definitely kind of gets back to that uh, sort of putting something on the line, making them care a little bit. And I would say that the the sort of demise of the all-star game. And again, I feel like it's an event that I really enjoy and, and um, and a lot of people really enjoy, but it's certainly not the mandatory viewing. It used to be um, back in say like the eighties and the nineties. I think going to the Olympics in 98 kind of changed our perception of the all-star game in the sense that, we don't, you know, we, we, now we can see these guys play with each other in different venues. You know, we can see them in the world cup. We can see them in the Olympics every four years in theory. Um, the novelty back then was, you know, getting a chance to see, you know, rival players playing on the same line, you know, Gretzky playing with guys from the Calgary flames and stuff like that. So I, I felt like ever since uh, Nagano in 98, the, the all-star game has certainly sort of taken on, a place of maybe less importance than it had back in the day for being such a novelty. Yeah, that's fair. Let's get into the skills competition for a minute. We're talking to Greg Wyshynski, senior writer at ESPN. So obviously, as you said, they, they do different things to tweak it every year. Uh, I want to get into the bullseye shot first because I thought that was really, really cool, having the players go up into the crowd. I, I don't know exactly what the measurement was, but I think they said 30 feet above ice level, if I'm not mistaken, something yeah, like that. So, so a pretty good distance, and they had to shoot for the bullseyes for those who didn't see it, and one of them was shaped like an arch, which was kind of cool, of course, because they're in St. Louis, and you, you got to play off of that a little bit. Uh, the arch itself created some controversy because a couple of shots barely escaped and go, went over the netting and hit off the backboard and then bounced back, and it looked like to the crowd and even on TV that those were goals. But aside from that... I like the concept of that. Was that one of the cooler things you saw this time around? Yeah. And I mean, you know, I, I talked to, um, I talked to some people around the league about that event and, and I think they, they see it as a work in progress <laughs> would be the word they use. But the players that I spoke to outside of Patrick Kane, who said that, you know, he much prefers the more traditional um, setup for the all-star game than to see some of the gimmickry. A lot of them said that they found it to be fun. You could see that they were having fun with it. They just need to kind of clarify and clean up the thing a little bit. Um, it's never good when uh, the players themselves are confused as to what exactly is occurring in the event, which is exactly what you had in that in that uh, competition where Mitch Marner and uh, David Pasternak and a few others thought that they uh, hit the 10-point target or whatever it was, and then it ended up not counting. So uh, with some, some tweaks and some clarity, um, I think it'll it'll be something that can grow and be better. And I heard that it played pretty well on television 
um, even if it made it maybe didn't play as well inside the arena. So that's always a good thing. Yeah, and the one thing I also really liked about it, Greg, was the idea of the player being closer to the fan as much as I did the shot, right? You know, these guys, you see them on the ice and you have the separation, even though it's a thin separation with the boards and the glass and you can get as close to the glass as you want if you are willing to pay the money. But the idea that the player was where the fans sit, right? I mean, I know they weren't right on top of them. They had their own little special spot, but they were that much closer as a different angle, different way to see the player. I thought that must've been really cool for the fan. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And then, you know, having them come through the crowd, like you said, and stuff, it's, it's, it definitely was a different vibe. And, and again, uh, you know, in hockey, you're trying to do things that are going to get you uh, some attention um, from the mainstream sports media that you may not otherwise get. You're always trying to kind of find a way to do things that are interesting and different, whether it's playing outdoors or what have you to, uh, to attract that attention. And, I thought it was a worthy effort to have an event like that just because it did look so different. And, and if you're, you know, tuning in and, and seeing a highlight of it, it's, it's like nothing you've ever seen before. Agreed. Uh, women's three-on-three competition. Number one, did you like that idea? And number two, what could that lead to, if anything? Yeah, it was awesome. I mean, it was, it was a really cool idea in the sense that it does touch on that international pride we were talking about with Canada versus the USA. I think at this point, um, you know, most NHL fans have have watched the women's Olympic competitions. They're familiar with a lot of these names, whether it's any of the American players or uh, Marie-Philippe Poulin with Canada. Um, and so I think it's it's great that they had that platform, and I think they put on a heck of a show. As, as far as what it means going forward for women's hockey, it's tough to say. I mean, it, the, the NHL, I think, is closer than it's ever been to trying to create some sort of women's league. Um, but they've been very vocal about the fact that they don't want to, they don't want to do that until the National Women's Hockey League, which is, you know, thriving in its own way right now, um, is no longer uh, providing a, a place for players to play. Um, the elite players that are not playing in the NWHL have said that that uh, you know the NHL should just step in and create something now. Um, so we'll see where it all leads. I, I the one thing I, I think is important is that for the fans who see this as um, something that's not going to be a success that don't see the profitability in a women's league. I just would remind everybody that like, you know, the NHL spends uh, hundreds of millions of dollars on um, ways to promote the game and, and trying to get people to play and exposing new audiences to hockey um, without seeing a dime in direct financial compensation for those efforts. And, to me, this is no different. To me, this is a really great advertisement for hockey, and uh, a women's league would be an incredible way to reach new audiences and, and get more people interested in the game. In, and, I, and I think that if you scale it the right way, it may not necessarily be a gigantic money loser or, or what have you. But at the end of the day, I mean, it's, it's spending money to create new fans that will then spend more money for decades to come, and I think that's a very worthwhile uh, avenue for the NHL to take. Completely agree. And by the way, to that point, have you noticed or has anyone said anything to you with the league in regard to whether, since they can't monetize it or they, they don't see 
a return in that regard. Have people been actively engaging in, in hockey since they've gone with this, you know, we'll, we'll pay for you to get on the ice? I mean, as you said, they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars in trying to get new people engaged in a game, which I think traditionally is thought of as being too expensive for most families to, to afford to be able to send their kids to play. Well, the NHL is trying to say, you know what, we'll take some of the expense out of it. We want to expose you to this. Have, have they seen any type of return that tells them that this so far is going well for them? Sure. I mean, you, you don't. The, the participation numbers in free USA hockey around the country, especially in emerging markets, are all quite good. Um, they've always been on the upswing, especially for girls. Um, and then you know, you, you don't look any farther than the NHL draft and see where these kids are coming from now. I mean, you know, Austin Matthews famously coming from Arizona, uh, Jack Hughes coming from Florida. Um, there's every year there's more people and more players that are coming from different parts of the country that didn't used to produce NHL talent. Um, now, part of that is the fact that the NHL's expansion uh, strategy put teams in different markets and, and gave those kids a chance to get exposed to the NHL product and created new, you know, ice sheets that look no further than Las Vegas where, um, you know, youth teams and, and uh, you know, local teams are getting a chance to play on on ice that didn't exist before the team came there. Hmm. Um, you know, it, it's it's a it's a cumulative effect of of the NHL's reach in the U.S. in particular that the numbers are up. But you know, the more you expose people to the game, the more they're going to want to play it and get interested in it. And um, I think the NHL's efforts to that end have been pretty effective. Absolutely. We're talking to Greg Wyshynski, senior writer at ESPN, for a few more minutes. I want to branch off the All-Star game for a second since I have you here uh, because there have been some other very interesting topics around the league all season long, above and beyond what's going on on the ice, which has been highly competitive and a lot of fun to watch, uh, as it generally is. Let's go into the coaching first for a second, and I know you have... A love affair, if I'm not mistaken, for the New Jersey Devils, which I must admit I'm from New Jersey. I grew up there. I, I was a Devils fan as a kid and have always followed that team. So they are of interest to me to a certain degree as well. They make not just a coaching change this year, but a general manager change. They move on from John Hines, who winds up catching on in Nashville. And I'll get into that in one second. But I want to ask you first about Ray Shiro. They wind up firing Shiro within... I don't know, a week, two weeks, maybe three weeks after he orchestrates the Taylor Hall trade. And the Hall trade presumably is the biggest move that they had to make all season to decide if they were able to keep him or not. And if they're going to move him, what could they get back? And ultimately, they wind up sending him to Arizona. Were you a little bit surprised in any regard? And I asked this question to Ken Danico. He said no, he didn't care. But I'm curious if you were as surprised as I was that they were willing to let Shiro orchestrate such a big move for their franchise, moving a, a, a franchise-caliber player player, a Hart Trophy winner in a deal, and then just ultimately deciding that the GM who just made that trade wasn't worth keeping in that job afterward. Yeah, I don't know if they're necessarily related, although, you know, there's, we haven't really gotten any clarity as to whether or not the return for that trade had any impact on, uh, you know, the, the, the firing of Shiro. Um, I just think that from, a, from what I've been able to gather uh, from an organizational standpoint, the Devils just weren't where they wanted to be, you know, five years into Shiro's reign as GM. Um, I, I've heard that there is sort of, sort of a, a, an organizational thing where you have people from the owner's other property with the Philadelphia 76ers that may have some influence on looking at uh, the, the status of other parts of their empire. And maybe there was a thought that the devils should be better than what they are. And, you know, just looking at it from a critical standpoint, um, it's, you know, Ray Shiro was hired to 
rebuild the Devils after Lula Amarillo kind of left them a little bit barren. Um, and now the Devils are in a completely different rebuild <laughs> at the end of Shero's tenure. So, you know, when that happens, it's very hard to defend keeping the general manager around. I think the timing surprised some people, but at the same time, I mean, if you know that this isn't your guy going forward, um, yeah, he gets the chance to pull the trigger on the, on the hall trade. Maybe the, the, the decision hadn't been made at that point. Um, but it's pretty clear that like, if you don't think he's the guy going forward, you might as well get him out now and just turn the keys over to uh, Tom Fitzgerald and, and Marty Brodeur and, and see what maybe if you have uh, what might be your next regime in place. They're in such a tough spot right now, are the Devils. And so, as I mentioned, John Hines was the first part of this, and he winds up getting fired. Uh, clearly, it was not working out. They, they didn't agree with the style of coaching, maybe, or they just didn't think the team was playing with enough speed, as I've heard from a number of different people. So he winds up getting fired, ultimately catches on in Nashville there, and that has become a huge trend around the league, not just this year, but over the last several years, where coaches are essentially getting recycled. Is that, number one, a concern to you, that we're not seeing a lot of new blood in the game, and number two, why do you think teams keep doing that, just going from one guy who didn't work out somewhere else and bringing him in? Cowardice. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, it's, it's a problem to not have new faces and new voices uh, behind NHL benches um, and that we do see the same known commodities over and over again. I mean, like, John Hines was clearly the guy that they were going to hire if they were going to fire Peter Laviolette. And, you know, that's because Ray Shiro used to work with David Poyle and got the vote of confidence from him in this guy that they're going to hire. And like, they didn't even do any due diligence in interviewing anybody for that gig. They just kind of handed the keys over to this next guy. And it's kind of a baffling process when that happens. I mean, in some cases this season, we have interim coaches that moved in because of certain situations um, warranting it. And, and that's just going to happen every season. Um, but, you know, to see the same faces over and over again for these coaching gigs is frustrating um, but less, maybe less frustrating than it is to see the same faces over and over again for general manager spots, which is sort of the real uh, crux of, of the hiring practices in this league. Yeah, maybe that's why it keeps happening. You bring in the same GM, he wants to hire a coach that he knows. It's uh, comfort, maybe, for all of them. Uh, One last one for you, Greg. You're watching the league just like I am, probably even closer, I would think, than I am. What's your biggest surprise so far as you look around to, what are we, almost at the three-quarter mark here in the NHL season? Is it San Jose with uh, how poorly they've played, the Caps being as good as they are, Uh, the Canucks maybe ahead of schedule? What's your biggest surprise? Yeah, I would just say that entire Pacific Division being as tight as it is right now. I mean, basically uh, two points separate first in that division from fifth in that division. And uh, to have that happen without any of the California teams being any good this year is sort of a shock. Uh, so just, just the parity in that division, how tight things are, and, uh, and really kind of wondering how it's going to shake out. I mean, if you look inside the numbers, um, the Calgary Flames, I think, have the best percentage chance of finishing first. Uh, they've had an incredible run under their interim coach, Jeff Ward there, where I think they're on track to have a hundred points um, based on his points percentage as head coach. So it, it's that whole division being as, as tight as it is and, and uh, not having any of, the, any of the California teams, even in the conversation, is sort of a surprise. Yeah, I agree completely. Greg, it's been a pleasure to have you. I really do appreciate all the time, all the information, and uh, hopefully we get a chance to catch up again down the road. You got it, man. Thanks. That's the great Greg Wyshynski, senior writer at ESPN. This is the Rink Rat Show. We're back after this. Are you a mouse or a man? As a matter of fact, no. We're neither. We've got a rat. Rob Brinder is the Rink Rat. 
on Lightning Power Play. Welcome back to the Rink Rat Show. I'm Rob Brenner. The Vancouver Canucks haven't been to the playoffs since 2015 and haven't won a round since making it all the way to the Cup Finals in 2011. They saw the departure of their cornerstone players, Henrik and Daniel Sedin, following the 2018 campaign, further advancing what has been a long rebuilding process. But the cornerback to contention started to be turned last season when they finished with 81 points and budding stars Elias Pettersson, Bo Horvat, Brock Besser became household names for NHL fans around the globe. This season, they appeared to be ready to take another giant step forward, having added potential star-level defensive talent Quinn Hughes to the lineup, as well as Tyler Myers, whom they signed in the offseason. And right now, they're on top of the highly competitive Pacific Division. The question is, how far can this team go now, and are they truly cup contenders at this point? Joining us to go deeper into everything going on in Vancouver is their fantastic radio play-by-play broadcaster, Brendan Batchelor. Brendan, how are you, my friend? I'm good, Rob. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to have you on. You have a fun young, exciting team, a roster that I know has been in the process, as I said, of a really kind of slow rebuild here over the last decade or so, but now they've gotten to the point where it looks like they've got the star-level talent to build around and maybe take this team, I don't know about to the cup this year, but certainly into contention for a playoff spot. Are, are you a little bit surprised at how far they've been able to come in such a quick period of time here over the last year or so? Yeah, I am. I'd be lying if I said that I wasn't. But, you know, you look at the modern NHL and the rate at which young players are making gigantic differences for their hockey clubs. And in that sense, you can understand what's happened. You know, you alluded to it off the top there. They uh, draft Brock Besser in the first round a few years ago back in 2015. They got Bo Horvat early in the first round in 2013 uh, in that trade that sent Corey Schneider to the Devils. And those were sort of the early building blocks of, of what they've been able to add to here with Elias Pettersson, uh, you know, fifth overall in 2017, and then Quinn Hughes, seventh overall in 2018. And, uh, you know, that, that that's the number one thing that I take away from it is it, it really shows how prepared today's young player is to come in and have a huge impact at the NHL level because, you know, in the example of Quinn Hughes, he has without a doubt been the team's best defenseman this year. He completely changes the complexion of the way they play because, you know, in past seasons, they had a really tough time getting out of their own zone and transitioning the puck and they would get hemmed in and they would have to block a lot of shots and they would have to take a lot of hits deep in their own zone. And as a result, they were oft injured. You know, Alex Edler, Chris Tanev, these are defensemen who have spent a lot of time injured over the last few seasons. But that hasn't been as much the case this year. And, you know, they're a better team. They've got better players other than Hughes. But his ability to transition the puck out of the defensive zone, whether it's with his unique skating ability or his passing ability and his vision on the ice, it really changes the way this team plays so that now they can get on the front foot more. They can be the aggressive team. They can get in and establish their forecheck rather than having to defend for what felt like ages and ages at times over the past few seasons. He's got a lot of an Eric Carlson game to him in regard to his ability to get up the ice, his willingness to skate it really the full 200 feet. And with that, 
I know there were some concerns early in the season that you have to have a stay-at-home guy working with him on the blue line because otherwise you're going to get caught in two-on-ones going the other way pretty much every single minute that he's on the ice because he is so aggressive. How much concern was there about that? And also, how have they found a way to make that pairing work with Hughes so that he does feel comfortable that he can go as deep into the offensive zone as he does? Yeah, well, they've they've paired him most of the season with Chris Tanev, who, you know, for my money, is one of the most underrated defensive defensemen in the league, and uh, you know that I think that has helped Hughes in feeling more confident and and more free to. I don't know if I want to say roam, but uh, but get up the ice and be a part of the offense and and not be afraid about. Uh, what could happen the other way. You know, the Canucks went through a stretch in November where they weren't playing that well and they lost a number of games. And at times we saw them all pressuring too much up the ice, so they would give up those two-on-ones that you allude to because, you know, a defenseman, whether it was Quinn Hughes or Tyler Myers that likes to jump up in the play sometimes as well, would be, you know, a little bit too aggressive and maybe a forward wouldn't cover for them, and, and that really hurt them. But they, you know, of late they've limited that in their game. They've been playing a really structured, solid team game for most of the last month and a half. And it showed in the results where they're at right now atop the Pacific Division. But, you know, you were right in saying it's a hotly contested Pacific Division. It's it's one of those, you know, years anyway where you could lose a couple of games and go from leading the division to being, you know, on the playoff bubble. So there's plenty of hockey left to be played, but... Uh, they're pretty happy with where they're at at this point in the season, and they just need to continue to work to try and close it out. I'm talking to Brendan Batchelor, Canucks radio play-by-play broadcaster, does a tremendous job for them. One of the things that stands out, Brendan, also as you, you look at the stats for this team early on in the season, they're putting the puck in the net as much as any team right now out West. As a matter of fact, second in the Western Conference in goals, they lead the Pacific in goal differential. So goal scoring has not been an issue for them. And I remember during the offseason talking to people about the Canucks and I guess the one major concern was would they have enough depth on the forward lines behind that first line and maybe behind Bo Horvat's line even uh, with your third and fourth lines to put the puck in the net enough and to get enough goal scoring from those secondary players. And obviously at this point, I would imagine, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that that's not really a big concern. Uh, it's not. And in large part, it's because some of those secondary players are having you know, career years or they're on pace for career years. Anyway, Tanner Pearson is a guy that they got in a trade at the trade deadline last year for Eric Branson out of Pittsburgh. And, um, you know, many people within the market in Vancouver saw that as, you know, a move where you, you get rid of a, a contract in good Branson with a player that wasn't working out with the organization. And at least you got something back in the trade. Well, Pearson, you know, his previous career high is 44 points. He's on pace for over 60 right now. He's been one of their leading scorers over the last 25 games or so. Uh, and that has bring, brought much needed secondary scoring. You also add in the addition of JT Miller in the trade with Tampa at the draft. and He is on pace for a career year as well. Around 28 goals is what you'd project him to get based on his production to this point in the season. And, uh, you know, that that's another huge top six forward addition for this team. So not only have 
young players like Pedersen and Horvat continue to develop and grow, but now Jim Benning, the general manager, has supplemented them with players that can put the puck in the back of the net and can support their strong play as well. And then I, it comes back to what I was talking about with the blue line, where they're better at transitioning the puck. They're not spending as much time in their own zone, so there's more opportunity for offense. And I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up the fact that they have had tremendous goaltending for both their starter, Jacob Markstrom, and their young backup, Thatcher Demko. You know, I would say probably double digits in terms of the number of games that those two guys have stolen for this team this year. So that'll help with the goal differential as well when your goaltenders are shutting the door. And that's certainly been the case for the Canucks this year. Yeah, that's a good recipe, right? Put the puck in the net and don't let the other team do it to you. And and obviously they've had that nice combination early on and that's how you get to the top of the division. I, I want to go a little deeper into JT Miller because you brought him up. And obviously, as you said, he's having a tremendous season, a career year to this point. Only 26 years old. And when I think of JT Miller, because he spent all those years with the Rangers, moves on to Tampa, then goes to Vancouver in the offseason trade, that you think of a guy that, that's probably a lot older than that, but really just 26 and, and having this kind of season. And as I mentioned, with all that movement, do you think that was one of the reasons that you look at the goal totals, you look at the point totals, they were good, they were solid. He's been a, right around 50 goals, or I'm sorry, 50 points uh, over the last three or four seasons. But this year, it's just been that much better. He's taken it to that next level. Maybe a matter of comfort up in Vancouver, the players that he's playing with. What do you think has led to this great season so far for JT? Well, comfort is certainly part of it, but it's more opportunity. He was playing on a very good Tampa Bay Lightning team and playing down the lineup because, you know, you're not going to move up the lineup with guys like Braden Point and Steven Stamkos and all of the great players uh, that the Lightning have. But, he comes to Vancouver, and he is a top-line player for the Canucks. He's playing on the top power play unit. He's getting close to 20 minutes of ice time every night. He's playing with Elias Pettersson, and for long stretches of the season, Brock Besser on a line that really has been dynamic for the Canucks. And, you know, I talked to him about this the other day, and he says, yeah, he just feels like it, it's, it was a great opportunity for him. But, uh, you know, not to take anything away from, from how things were going in Tampa, but you know, he, he's got more opportunity to play and be an impact player and be a leader for this team. You know, he's only 26, but it's still a young team with guys that are just coming out of their teenage years like Pedersen and Hughes. And, you know, he's sort of fashioned himself into a leader within this dressing room and within the organization as well. So uh, I think it's sort of a perfect storm of a number of factors coming together. But, uh, you know, he, he would credit it to the opportunity. And it's funny because we... Uh, uh, when the team was in Philadelphia earlier in the season on a road trip, Elaine Vigneault, who coached him with the Rangers, was asked what he was seeing from JT Miller in his game right now. And he said, you know what? You can tell JT that I said he just gets it. Hmm. Like something his, his a switch, a switch has flicked for, for Miller that, you know, for whatever it is, he comes to the rink, he's committed, he's their hardest working player game in and game out and the points have followed for him, and it's certainly nice to see for Canuck fans. Yeah, he's been tremendous so far this season. We're talking to Brendan Batchelor, Canucks radio play-by-play broadcaster. i got to ask you, Brendan, actually, as you mentioned the ages of these players, and it, it brings to mind essentially what I said from the top, that you have this nice young core, and as you look around the rest of the division, and I do want to talk, by the way, about more of that young core here in a minute, but as you look around the mm-hmm. rest of the Pacific, the, the Kings are essentially in a full rebuild and they still have some aging players on their roster. We've seen the San Jose Sharks fall off this season. Also, uh, quite a bit of an, an older roster. They do have some good, relatively young talent, but still their key players, the Thorntons of the world, are, are much older 
And Vegas, uh, I guess, is sort of the one team that does have a nice mix of the youth and veteran talent. But as you look at the Canucks, they're the one team in that division that, at least to me, you say, wow, this is a young core. They don't really have the the veteran talent that's over the hill. The guys that are going to retire in the next year or two are going to have to be shipped out because their contracts are about to expire. They're going to make too much money. It looks like all these guys are probably going to be together for a pretty good stretch of time. I would suggest, and and I know you you might be the homer, you're the guy who's broadcasting for them, but (laughs) probably not hard to say that of all the teams in that division, they are probably in the best position to not just be good now, but to be good maybe for the next five or six years. Well, I I certainly see how you say that, and I don't necessarily disagree, although you look at the Edmonton Oilers with the key players that they have locked down, like Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl, and certainly uh, they've had a tough time building out the rest of their roster, but you know those are two of the top players in the entire league playing on the same team, so they're going to be well set up to have success if they can do a better job of finding guys to play around them. Uh, but you're right. They, they've got a young core that, that all seems to be developing and maturing and, and will come into its prime at the same time. So uh, that's exciting for Canuck fans. The, the interesting cap dance, as is the case with any team like this, is going to be the salary cap going forward. Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes are both going to need new contracts at the same time after one more season. Um, you know, they got Bo Horvat on a team friendly deal right now. They signed Brock Besser to a bridge contract, so he's under contract for a couple more seasons. But if the team continues to trend in the right direction, they are going to have to pay all of these players, and they may not be able to afford to pay all of these players. Um, but, but that said, it certainly is a, a nice spot for them to be in where uh, that's, that's a, a decision you want to make when you've got too many good players and you have to find a way to make it work. Uh, that's a good problem to have. And uh, for Jim Benning and his management group, they're going to have to navigate those waters over the next few years. But certainly Canucks fans agree w- with your sentiment that, you know, uh, many people believe that Elias Pettersson is like a franchise level centerman and Quinn Hughes, you know, could be a Norris contending defenseman in his career. And those are two of the biggest pieces you need to be a Stanley Cup contender. So uh, the signs are there that the Canucks are likely just about to enter a very strong era for the organization and for uh, a market in Vancouver that is hockey crazy and has been starved of a competitive team for the last number of years. You talked about it off the top. They haven't won a playoff round since they went all the way to the Stanley Cup Finals in 2011. It's a very exciting time right now. And along those lines then, Brendan, do they push now? Do they try to go that next level? Do they try to make the big trade before the deadline? Do they bring in a veteran maybe even next offseason? You know, you bring in a high-priced guy. It's sort of like a quarterback in the NFL, right? When you have Mahomes in in Kansas City making no money, that's the time when you can go out and you can splurge and you can bring in all these high-priced guys to build around them. Kind of the same thing in the NHL and exactly what you were alluding to, that you have this core. You don't know if you're going to be able to afford them three, four, five years from now to have everybody back and on the roster because of the salary cap. So do they make the push now? They could do, but the problem is that they are somewhat limited by their current salary cap constraints. They've got some expensive contracts for players that have not performed to the level that they would hope further down the lineup. Louis Erickson right now is in year four of a six-year deal that pays him $6 million every year, and he's been a healthy scratch 19 times this year. Now, he's playing some of the best hockey that he has as a Canuck 
right now. He's been playing on the Horvat line, and you know they've been really effective in limiting the top players of other teams. But certainly you look at his offensive numbers, and they are not what you would expect from a player that you're paying $6 million to. Brandon Sutter is a guy that's been injured pretty well consistently over the last number of years. He's making north of $4.3 million for this year and next year. And because they have these kinds of contracts, you know, $10 million tied up in what you would call bottom six forwards. And, you know, they've got guys like Jay Beagle, who they brought in from Washington, who's making $3 million as well. They don't have a lot of wiggle room. If they were to make some sort of splash at the trade deadline, it it almost has to be dollar in, dollar out in terms of uh, the money that they're going to exchange. So because of that, they may be somewhat limited in what they could do. But uh, it wouldn't surprise me if they try to tweak around the edges of this roster to give this group a better chance to, A, make the playoffs, because as much as they're leading the division, it's so tight that that's not a guarantee, and B, try to set them up to have success if they're able to get to the postseason as well. And if there was a major need, is it still another winger to play with Horvat? What do you think the big need is for this team? Yeah, that's what I would uh, I would circle is, uh, as I talked about, Louis Erickson's playing up the lineup and he's been doing a good job in a, in a defensive kind of role. But uh, in order to bring out more offense throughout your lineup, you'd like another winger that, that has the ability to score and, and provide offense to play with Pearson and, and Horvat in my mind. So that would be the one thing that, that I would look at for this organization. But we'll have to wait and see whether they go and make that sort of aggressive move between now and the trade deadline just about a month away. Just a couple more minutes here with Brendan Batchelor. I want to ask you really quickly about Elias Pettersson. You mentioned uh, they envisioned him as a, a frontline center here for the next 10 years or so probably. What makes him so good? Uh, there, There's such a variety of things I could talk about. His vision on the ice his ability to skate, first of all, he, he's a really shifty player, and his puck handling and his shot. Uh, he, he's a pretty well-rounded player, but uh, you know he'll do do something with the puck in terms of a, a nice deke or a, a great pass to create a play almost every game that that has the fans at Rogers Arena in Vancouver ooing and and eyeing. And uh, you know the one thing that I think when when the Canucks drafted him. People knew he had offensive capabilities, but what uh, has been most surprising and has really become a hallmark of his game is his commitment to the defensive side of the puck as well. There is you know, no one on the Canucks in my mind that backchecks harder than Elias Pettersson after he's turned the puck over. You find him regularly below the goal line in his own zone trying to help his defensemen win puck battles so they can break back up the ice. Um, so he's a pretty well-rounded player on top of the fact that uh, he has the great shot. He has the great hands. He's he's able to do special things with the puck and in the offensive zone. He has that dogged work ethic and determination and commitment to the defensive side of the game as well, and that's going to serve him very well in the long term. Just one last one for you, Brendan. I know you got to run. Uh, they're on the road right now, or the Canucks, and uh, I know you have to make it to practice. Uh, really quickly, what is the buzz around Vancouver? As you said, I know it's a great hockey town. They've been starving for a winner. They, they probably are getting into these young players, but have they bought in? Has the fan base really embraced what they're seeing right now? I would describe it as cautious optimism even now because this is an organization that you know is celebrating its 50th anniversary, has not won a Stanley Cup, and has had numerous heartbreaking losses along the way. And it's a market that's been used to a mediocre team over the last few years. So uh, there is excitement that the Canucks are, are in this position, but within the fan base, to a certain extent, there's still the 
the underlying sentiment of, well, let's see how they're going to mess it up this year. Hmm. So uh, I would say that, you know, parts of the fan base feel that way. There are parts of the fan base who are just very excited and uh, expecting that this is going to be the year that they get back to the playoffs. And uh, I guarantee that the city of Vancouver will come unglued if playoff hockey is something that we see come April, because it's, it has been a long time and it is such a, a passionate hockey market that, um, that that it'll be pretty special to see that if the Canucks can get there. But uh, I wouldn't say it's unbridled in excitement, unbridled optimism, and uh, that a large part of that is just because this is a team that, for whatever reason, through their 50 years in the NHL, have found a way to, to not get things done. They haven't won the Stanley Cup. Uh, they've been to the Stanley Cup final three times. They've lost in Game 7 twice, most recently in 2011, against the Boston Bruins. And, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of pain within the fan base as well. So uh, if they can get there, there'll be a lot of support and excitement. But until then, there's still a lot of skeptics about what this team could be. Which is understandable, but it is a nice young core. Brendan, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you again for the time. Really, really do appreciate it. And again, uh, enjoy this team. Enjoy watching them because I'm sure it's a lot of fun on a nightly basis. Yeah, thanks for having me, Rob. Appreciate yeah, it. That's Brendan Batchelor, Canucks radio play-by-play broadcaster. This is the Rink Rat Show. We'll see you next week.